You are listening to the Heavenly Chi podcast, episode number 59. Today, I'm joined by Nava Carmen, and we're discussing the treatment of male infertility with integrative Chinese medicine. Welcome back to the show, Nava. G'day, Claire. Thanks for having me again. This time, hopefully only one take needed. <laughs> hopefully only one take needed for this one. Absolutely. I feel like I've been discussing male fertility non-stop for the last few weeks. I've done seminars and conference presentations and uh, yeah, preparation for this podcast as well. So I'm well and truly in the zone for talking about all things male fertility. Amazing. Well, I'm going to bow to your expertise for a lot of today. I'm going to talk about it more from my area of interest, which is the epigenetic side of things. So tell me more about your your interest in epigenetics. Well, it came from uh, my myself, my own health, and I had grandparents who were part of the Second World War. Um, long story, but uh, hidden in sort of an Anne Frank type situation. And I had another set of grandparents who also, of course, went through various issues in the war in Australia, although nothing like they, my Dutch grandparents did. But very interested in the matrilineal line. They were my mother's parents who were Dutch and, and were hidden and, and suffered in, in the Second World War. And looking at the impact on my own health from my grandmother's experience has been a really interesting experience for me. And sort of unraveling where some of my own health stuff comes from because it's not present in my mom or her sister and trying to understand how I could improve my own health so as to not to pass anything on to my children or grandchildren. And from there, I sort of segued into looking at the impact of men and their health on their children and their future generations. And that journey actually started through looking at preeclampsia, funnily enough. I uh, had a very interesting interview with a preeclampsia consultant I work with because I do, for, for me, preeclampsia and reproductive immunology are very much uh, parts of the same piece uh, and recurrent miscarriage. Um, in fact, I'm hopefully just about to publish a paper on that. But I talked to him a lot about uh, preeclampsia and he talked about the influence of men on preeclampsia. And this is some pretty new stuff. And the influence of the circumference of their abdomen, for example, or if there was a, a patrilinear history of um, blood sugar issues, diabetes, all sorts of things. I won't go down that rabbit hole because we're talking about male fertility and sperm, but it really did hit home to me that although it is the woman who is carrying the baby, it is the father's own genetic and epigenetic history and the things that he does in his own life to change that influence that then affect those next generations. Wow. I am just floored by the fact that there is a link between preeclampsia and male health. I've, I just find that, fab, you know, just I'm just floored, <laughs> firstly. That's, that's my first response. But it's unsurprising when you think of it, right? Because, of course, I don't know why I didn't think of this. Of course, every baby is 50% of its father. Why would its father not have this huge influence? And it's because... We have been brainwashed by the medical patriarchy that so much of what goes on is down to the woman and her, quote, fault and her issues and her egg quality. And let's just bypass all the male stuff with some ICSI and move on. Because once the egg is fertilised, job done, thank you very much. Yeah. This is the sound of me, like, wiping my hands. <laughs> 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 if if we had like video camera of what's going on, <laughs> um, and interested, what I was, what came to mind as you said, as you were saying that, was the idea that we now, I guess, what came to mind for me as you were saying that is the way that the baby's DNA is detectable within the mother's bloodstream by the time um, by around about you know, 10 to 12 weeks gestation and that that DNA stays within the mother's body essentially for the rest of her life. They've, um, I remember seeing some fascinating reports on a woman in her 80s who contained, she had male DNA within her that was the DNA of her male children 
and that you know, she'd clearly given birth to them several decades earlier, but that the, de- the DNA stayed within her. And so I wonder how much of it is also under the influence of that DNA within the bloodstream and how that can potentially not just during gestation affect a woman's health, but also for the rest of her life. Mm. Um, so whatever the male partner does is actually left with her by way of her children. Yes. Yeah. And also apparently there's um, just, you know, whilst we're on the topic of sperm and the effects on women, there is a man apparently who can, he can detect the smell of semen on a woman's breath within an hour of intercourse. Um, And so it's something that ends up, if a woman has unprotected intercourse and has um, semen within her, that it absorbs in and there is a particular odour that she will exude within an hour or so and that women hold some type of memory of um, the DNA of all of the sperm that has ever been in contact with their body. And I just find that uh, quite interesting fascinating and somewhat disturbing all at the same time <laughs> i'm just gonna say how do you think he found that out is he like is he trying to make an argument against uh, female sexuality there i don't know that's how do you find that out i don't know he's just a sperm whisperer i'd have to try and look <laughs> it up i'm sure i'm sure there's people uh, who are listening now who've also read similar reports so whether or not he's making it up i just found it really interesting that there's this idea that there's physiological changes that happen um, and, you know, chemical interactions that happen in response to semen within a woman's body that, has, that can play out throughout her whole body. Well, we know that sometimes patients have sperm allergies, don't we? Yes. They actually have irritations and strong vaginal skin dermatological reactions to semen. Yes. And I find that fascinating. Is that just a thing or is it the body's way of saying this is not the right mate for you? It's, you know, and by the way, I think we obviously have the title of this podcast, The Sperm Whisperer. (laughs) Just saying. I like that. (laughs) It's interesting. And this idea that, you know, the epigenetics of of sperm, and I guess this is the the whole purpose of of intercourse really, um, is you know, to produce offspring and and the idea of, you know, the way that a woman's um, libido and the type of mate that she chooses will change according to the, uh, you know, which part of her menstrual cycle she's in and the, in her most fertile window, she's more likely to go for that alpha male, the, the man who demonstrates those superior genetics and those markers that we look for that indicate good health, good genes. But I find that very interesting you say that because I'm observing a very interesting, perhaps a, and keeping in mind that I'm only seeing a certain microcosm of population, right? I'm a, my group is a self-selecting group because they have to be able to afford me. They have to have the time to work with me. So I'm seeing a particular group of people and they're often because my practice is focused on women who are 38 to 45 who have complex health issues and who um, often have multiple failed IVFs. There are certain selection of population who are often bankers or lawyers or management consultants. And I'm finding it because I audit everything in my practice. I find it so fascinating to see their partners who are so often much less driven, much less alpha, much less healthy, much more overweight, um, very different to them. And I, I work with a really interesting psychiatrist uh, who always says that whoever is the passive person or the withholder in the relationship has the power. And I'm fascinated to see how often in that dynamic the man is unwilling to engage in any change or acknowledgement or alteration of his health for the purpose of having a child. And in, as the woman wants it more and more and more, the balance of power shifts and he has the control in a way perhaps he didn't have before. It's just something that I've slowly been collecting and observing over the years. I don't know if that's a dynamic that you see. I do see it a little bit with with some of my patients. Um, there's, there's definitely a particular cohort of male patients who are reluctant participants in the process of having a baby 
or, or, you know, creating a baby. The person with the lower level of desire is the one who has the control and has the power, but they don't actually want it. Yeah. Is, is the way that I've seen it described, especially I've seen it described in that way in particular in relation to sexual desire and libido. Mm. Um, but I guess it, it plays out in any relationship dynamic um, in relation to any part of your life. So one person wants a baby, the other person doesn't. Then the person who has all of the power is the person who wants the baby the least. Yeah. And they don't even, they don't even want the power. They're like, like, why does this even have to be a thing? <laughs> um, but I, I do see a mix. Um, I see some men who are, you know, they're, they're reasonably motivated. But generally speaking, I, and I guess this is one of the other topics we wanted to discuss and we might kind of weave our way in between the topics as we go along. Um, but, you know, this idea of, you know, how do we get the male patients on board for treatment? Um, a lot of the time they do come in reluctantly if they come in at all. And um, and I find that a tricky dynamic to work with at times. But generally speaking, there is, even if the man doesn't necessarily have, hold an interest in improving his fertility or in improving their chances of being able to conceive, he will usually hold an interest in being supportive to his partner and doing things that will um, strengthen their relationship. And by joining her on the journey of, um, you know, improving their fertility, improving their health, then um, he's going to be supporting her, strengthening their relationship. They'll be doing things together on the journey together. Mm. And as a byproduct, then his fertility improves. I think you're right. I've over the last sort of six months or so, I've used a more analytical approach to try and get men in the door, which has been to, I don't know if this happens in Australia, but in London they do a lot of sperm tests, but DNA fragmentation testing or reactive oxidization testing is lagging quite far behind. And so I'm looking at what's been going on with multiple failed IVF cycles, for example, and I'm saying, hmm, do you think we could just get a DNA fragmentation test done? and sending information through information leaflets through for the man to read and then without me having seen the partner and then the woman will make sure that test gets done and then the results will inevitably come back appallingly and then the man will come in because he's shocked and wants to know what to do so it's a much more technical way in the door but what's really interesting to me is often the relief that it's not just the woman it's not just on her and that there is an explanation as to why embryos arrest on day three or why implantation either doesn't happen or happens and very quickly fails. That's beyond the egg quality question. And I'm so glad that you brought that up because it's a really important point when you're working with couples because, and I guess it depends on the specifics of what is happening in the areas where you are. So in the UK, you mentioned that DNA fragmentation and other more advanced um, semen analysis as is not necessarily happening um in australia it's it's happening so rarely um i would say that we're testing for sperm antibodies here i'm seeing it in probably less than 10 percent of the men that i'm working with and i've seen dna fragmentation testing done a handful of times wow. in my career so you're working with one hand tied behind your back really because you can't see that what's going on to fix it Correct. And so, however, but, you know, despite the fact that we have access to such limited diagnostic information, we're still able to get good results. And I mm -hmm. think that's where the benefit of operating primarily from a Chinese medicine lens um, provides us with a lot of, a lot of power and a lot of flexibility within our treatment. We can provide great results even without knowing what we're treating. Um, it obviously gives us more information if we've got access to that information, but it's not necessarily going to adjust our treatment in a way that's going to make a huge, massive difference. Um, you, you might have some different ideas about that, but often I'm, I'm not necessarily going to be changing too much the types of herbs I'll be giving, the types of supplements I'd be recommending, because I'm often going to be prescribing those herbs and recommending those supplements anyway. 
That's interesting. I'm not, I should say, I, I am a herbalist, but I'm not a nutritionist and not an integrated medicine nutritionist in the way that you are. So I work with my right-hand woman on that um, in the UK. But I think the biggest difference is for me when I'm treating, when I'm seeing a DNA fragmentation versus a normal sperm test, I actually would choose different herbs depending on what I'm seeing, mm. especially with the advent of the oxidization. Well, the oxidization would cause the, the nutritionist I work with to perhaps change or up the dose. But when I'm seeing DNA fragmentation, I might choose a different kind of herb. So for example, rather than going down because of you know, our questioning and our response is a symptomatic one, right? As, as herbalists, we ask a million different questions and we base our choice of herbs on, on those answers. But if I then have that overlaid by DNA fragmentation and I can see exactly how bad it is, whether it's single or double helix DNA issues, I can then just adjust within the category, the choice of herbs that I use, or maybe choose to change from a clearing damp heat primarily to clearing damp heat and breaking blood choice so it just adds slight nuance for me as a herbalist in, in how I'm working and so is there any other place where you would see that evidence of blood stasis is there anywhere else that you would potentially see that well yeah for things like varicocele for example if we discover that that's happened that's diagnosed physically or by ultrasound no but what I mean is in the case of a man who has DNA fragmentation is there is it ever the case that you see a man that has DNA fragmentation and nowhere else in any of his other pathology tests is there any indication of blood stasis or anywhere on his tongue or pulse? No, that's, it's never there. It's always there. So it's about the adjustment of the herbs, the nuance, rather than adding in a whole new category of diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so you would change. Can you give an example of the type of herb that you would substitute like what would you take out and what would you replace it with? So if I was doing just damp heat, for example, if I was doing, oh, I've got a horrible accent. I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> I'm going to embarrass myself horribly by saying this, but uh, if I was doing something like Chikansa, um or I Chichenza? was Chichenza, there you go, Chichenza, or I was doing Long Dan Sao, for example, I might switch to Huan Yusha because that has a blood breaking aspect to it, but I'm still dealing with damp heat. Mm -hmm. So it's just a small tweak, but it's just enough to make a difference. Yeah. And also there's something very right brained or so left brained about it, because then if we can treat and we can redo a fragmentation test a hundred days later and see what I look for is about a 10% or more improvement. That's buy-in from a client who's been dragged by his partner. They're there. They're then with me until mm -hmm. that's better. Yeah. And I agree with you. Um, I primarily use testing if, if it's going to help the patient to be on board. So for some of the ones who are really dragging their feet, they're very reluctant participants. I think testing is fabulous. Um, and I just find it really useful for giving, you know, as you say, giving those markers to be able to check for you know, what has been the outcome of you going through all of this rigmarole of, you know, taking your herbs and making other changes that we're going to be recommending as well, um, including things like getting mobile phones out of your pocket. Yep. It's the first, first step for DNA frac. Well, it's the first step for any male fertility patient, but very much um, a foundational piece for um, DNA fragmentation. Yeah. And speaking of, and of course, it's we're not talking about it in a kind of a woo-woo way, taking phones out of pockets, right? We're not talking about electromagnetic energy or anything like that. We're, we're even just talking about the raise in scrotal temperature from the presence of a warm thing in your pants. And speaking of warm things in people's pants, <laughs> this segues us on to the other thing that we wanted to talk about, which is scrotal temperature and the influence of that on spermatogenesis, on the Sertoli cells that actually produce sperm. Yeah, um, we don't want to have warm things. We don't want hot balls, basically. We don't want hot balls. Um, there's a fabulous website called don'tcookyourballs.com. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> and it's a really great, such a great site. <laughs> it is a really great resource um, for, you know, to send your patients too, um, to get some information um, 
and just in general for good resources. Um, but not cooking your balls is a really good thing to do. And there's some really interesting research um, that I came across that has been, that's come out of South Korea where they have a lot of um, heated seats, no, not heated seats, heated flooring in South Korea. And there's, a, um, I guess, a lot of men who spend time sitting on the floor in South Korea. And so there was some research that, um, that was conducted to investigate any potential effect of sitting on heated flooring um, and does that affect a man's fertility. And what was discovered, um, so I guess, you know, understanding the purpose of having, having the scrotum, having the testes away from the body is, to, uh, is because the ideal temperature is a couple of degrees lower than core body temperature. But obviously, and as most men will report, most men know, um, some women may or may not know this, that the, the, uh, the testes can descend and, and retract in response to environmental temperature. So, for example, the classic example is that a man gets into a freezing cold swimming pool or jumps into the freezing cold ocean and everything contracts. So cold contracts, we know this from our Chinese herbal theory and our Chinese um, medicine education. So the cold contracts, everything contracts and this, um, the testes and the scrotum come up closer to the body to try and maintain that ideal temperature for spermatogenesis. And also to a certain extent in, um, in response to temperature, um, like a hot temperature. So if a man was sitting on a heated floor or works with the laptop on the lap is another classic. Exactly. Um, or with, um, heated seats in a car that the, um, the, the scrotum, the testes will retract to a certain extent to the ability that they can to get away from, uh, to get away from that temperature. Um, and the specifics of that research, I think it was 31 degrees was the temperature at which the body could no longer regulate, the body could no longer adjust. Um, so sitting on a heated seat, sitting on heated flooring or having some type of hot thing over the groin, um, the body could adapt to a certain extent, but then once, um, once it got past a certain level, it was game over. The temperature of the, of the testes became too high and then spermatogenesis became affected. And I, we, I had a very interesting conversation with a client and I actually ran it by you, didn't I? Because you've written a much needed book on this subject, which I hope you'll yes. talk about in a bit. But the client said to me, I'd asked him to get one of those thermometers that are the infrared ones where you can just point it at something. I have them in my house. You know, we pointed at bath water. We pointed at the kid if it's trying to run away, which we pointed at ourselves. It tells you the temperature of whatever you pointed at. But I said, point it at your balls and just figure out what your temperature was. And his temperature was consistently 35.2 and his body temperature was consistently 37.2. And there's supposed to be about a two-degree variation between balls and body. But traditionally, the books tell us that for Sertoli cells to work properly and for, for spermatogenesis to be really effective, it should be about 34 degrees. So the question then becomes, is it right for it to be objectively 34 degrees or, for, or is it right to be two degrees less than whatever your personal normal body temperature is? And I tend to think the latter because everybody is different, right? Not everyone is going to have a body temperature of 36 degrees. So I tend to go for two degrees less. And so I ran this by you. Mm. And I think, um, I think we have to also ask the question, what is a normal body temperature? And if someone, if a man came to me and his temperature during the day was 36.0, this is Celsius. So I don't even know how to convert that into Fahrenheit. The I, people listen, I live the people in England and, and Celsius is my thing too, because I'm an Aussie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, convert, let me look it up. Again, Celsius to Fahrenheit. Okay. 36. Okay. So we're talking about 96.8 degrees Fahrenheit. So if a man came in and he's at 36.0 Celsius, which is 96.8 Fahrenheit, I would be concerned that his temperature was too low. Looking at thyroid issues potentially. Absolutely. Right? You'd be checking out things that were wrong. I would be. Um, and so I would be looking to have, I mean, ideally, from my point of view, I want my male patients to be at 36.8 Celsius, which is 98.24 Fahrenheit. Um, and so if we're going two degrees below that, then sure, that's 34.8, but 
mm-hmm. or the, you know, the apparently ideal temperature for um, spermatogenesis. But I have, I've had a very tough time finding information on what is the ideal temperature. There seems to be a lot of discrepancy between what even is normal body temperature, yeah. let alone what is, um, you know, the ideal temperature for spermatogenesis. So I think you're right. Having, having someone with optimal body temperature is the first thing. And then the second thing is ensuring that that temperature differential between the, um, between the, the scrotum and the, and the core body temperature is, um, is the next priority. I think that's right. And with this particular patient I'm talking about, my diagnosis for him, there is a lot of heat and a lot of damp heat. And I think that's the reason why his body temperature is hovering about 0.4 degrees higher than I'd like it to be. So as we clear heat, I'd be very interested to see what happens to that core body temperature and then what happens to the scrotal temperature as a result. So watch mm. this space. We'll see. Yes. Yep. Now, I wanted to circle back to something we were talking about before with, um, with regards to mobile phones in pockets, cell phones in pockets. Um, and there is actually a, a, a huge amount of research on electromagnetic radiation. Mm. So this is the radiation that comes from mobile phones. There is a really great lecture that, was, um, that I saw a couple of years ago that was presented to actually one of the schools of engineering here in, in Melbourne from a woman who did a lot of work. So the very start of her career was around collecting, this is in the 70s, collecting evidence around um, the dangers of passive smoking um, and she was part of the of the process of getting cigarette smoking banned on airplanes. Wow. And finding the information to back that up was really difficult and getting those correlations about, um, you know, is it safe, is it not? And they ended up, um, they got it through by demonstrating that children of smoking parents were more likely to be hospitalised for asthma. Mm. Um, and if I'm remembering correctly, and that was the only piece of information they had to demonstrate that passive smoking proved a risk to others and therefore needed to be banned on, um, on air flights or that there needed to be, you know, like a non-smoking section, which I remember that when I was younger, which always seemed really bizarre because it's all the same air. Yeah, once it's smoke, um, it's smoke, right? <laughs> Anyway, so this was the very start of her career and she's been involved in a whole bunch of processes and now she's been involved in research around mobile phone radiation. And so there's a whole host of information that has has come out, but the research has been um, conducted in a very interesting way. So obviously there's a very um, distinct lack of funding. The majority of the funding comes from from government, um, doesn't come from industry. And a lot of the industry studies that are done are conducted very poorly and over very um, short periods of time. Um, but some of the information, so a lot of the studies that are showing, you know, that it's safe were conducted back in the 90s where the idea of someone using, I think the, the benchmark was someone who uses their phone four hours a week. Oh, yeah, right. Um, and that was considered to be, oh, yeah, well, you know, who's going to use their phone for more than four hours a week? Fast forward to 2020 and, you know, people would probably have a heart attack at the idea of being away from their phone four hours a week. You know, that idea of doing a techno detox um, where people are like, I'm not going to be on my phone for the whole weekend, you know. So we're, we're in a totally different place from a social point of view um, and things that haven't been tested on children and there's a whole... There's a whole rabbit hole, as I'm sure you can imagine. Um, but one of the things that um, is very interesting to discover is if you go into the settings in your phone and you go into, so in an iPhone, um, and you can do this while you're listening, and you can go into general. If you have an Android, I don't know exactly how to find it. But if on an iPhone, go to settings, go to general, go to legal and regulatory. I'm not going to be able to do mine because I don't have an iPhone. So I'm just going to. Yeah. And then go to RF exposure. And this is what it says on all mobile phones. 
The, um, the iPhone has been tested and meets applicable limits for radio frequency exposure. And basically it says during testing iPhone, uh, it has changed and meets applicable limits for radio frequency exposure. It used to say that having the phone in physical contact, indirect contact with your body exceeds the as tested guidelines for what is safe in terms of um, radio frequency exposure. Um, And there's a whole bunch of documentation around the, the field of, um, of radio frequency exposure and electromagnetic radiation exposure that, um, and it changes depending on what's happening with your phone. So the most, so the maximum amount of power that will be emitted from your phone happens at the commencement of a phone call Mm -hmm. so that is at the moment when the cell tower pings your phone um, and says where are you (laughs) and the phone says i'm here it's like great there's going to be a call coming in your phone will fire up and that's at its maximum charge and that's the maximum amount of exposure and so if you keep your phone in your pocket then you're going to be exposed to that um, amount of radiation um, every time that you receive a phone call it also happens if you're traveling in between um, cell phone towers. So if you're in your car, for example, and you have your phone in your pocket, then your phone more regularly sends the message ah. to, the, to the tower saying, where are you? Oh, here I am. Where are you now? Here I am. And those signals when your phone is trying to reach the tower is when your phone is at um, very high level of power. Um, and for those who know anything about electrical engineering um, and physics will know that the the amount of radiation that comes off any device um, in in that type of setting is it's it's not a linear equation so it's the distance squared so if you're 500 meters away from the tower versus five kilometers away from the tower you're 10 times further away, but it's actually a hundred times more power is required to be able to reach that distance. Mm. Yep. Um, And so that's where, you know, the idea about Wi-Fi, you know, and people think, oh, Wi-Fi is really bad. Well, it is, but um, cell phone radiation is orders of magnitude worse because you're likely to be you know, maybe four meters, maybe 10 meters away from your Wi-Fi router at home, but you're going to be, you know, maybe four kilometers away mm. from the the cell tower near your house. And so that's a thousand times further potentially, um, which means it's a thousand times a thousand, which is a million times stronger, that signal that's required for your cell phone versus the Wi-Fi. So there are people who are concerned about Wi-Fi and the effects on the testes and on spermatogenesis, yes, it's an issue. However, the more pressing issue is the um, the cell phone radiation just simply because the signal strength is so much higher. Mm. Um, so I'll post up some links in the show notes on that for those who are interested. It's a fascinating area. There is research backing it up. There's a lot more research that's still needed, um, but the evidence that's already there is quite compelling. So it's not woo-woo by any stretch of the imagination. So there's... A number of very significant concrete reasons from a technological and from a temperature-based reasoning that that mobile phone should not be in contact with you and that laptop should be off your lap when you're working. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. So. So one of the things I wanted to talk about is informed consent infertility work. And I think information is power. And so often I perform what I call a fertility detective role for my clients, where I'm synthesizing all the information they've been given and all the tests they've had and all of the things they're wanting and putting it together and making it understandable for them and making kind of a program and suggestions of ways to move forward and helping them find good clinics that are reputable. Because when you launch into the fertility world, you're so, it's such a steep learning curve. You're supposed to be you're not an expert, but we have to get expert really quickly and try and understand what's happening to you. Unless you luck into someone who's um, really reputable and trustworthy or unless you find someone like like us who are fertility detectives or fertility specialists who can interpret and, and support you on that journey, you're kind of there on your own. 
And one of the things that nobody ever talks about in fertility clinics is the fact that IVF has only been around for 40 years. And the fact that the jury is still out about what is going to happen and what the children of IVF are going to be capable of in terms of fertility. But what's fascinating to me is that last year, the boys who were old enough, who, who had been made by ICSI, so who'd been made by taking a sperm and actually deliberately inputting it into an egg, they're finally, finally old enough to have uh, given sperm samples. And what we can see is the men with DNA fragmentation that was so bad that they required ICSI were not just passing on a problem, but were worsening the problem. So they were producing boys who were infertile who would require ICSI themselves to have children. And the argument goes, well, if it was fine for me, it'll be fine for my child. And yes, absolutely, that might be the case. But just think about how widely that attitude will spread through the population and the epigenetic implications for fertility across our population, our ability to have babies. So there's a really big argument from my point of view. If you need ICSI, thank God it's there. But there's a big argument from my point of view of getting down and figuring out why that DNA fragmentation is there and not being in such a rush to make a baby that you don't take the time to try and improve it or fix it. And in Israel, for example, where they're really crushed out on fertility treatment, what they have seen is, and it's fascinating to me that, that the research is around boys, there are um, in boys a greater incidence of learning difficulties and autism associated with ICSI. So this isn't talked about ever. And in fact, ICSI is used, even when there isn't DNA fragmentation these days, often used as a vehicle for improving uh, fertilization of embryos. It's done for me so mindlessly, not mindfully, about what can be done to stop it being needed and what might the implications be for future generations. And have you actually talked to the couple about them so they can make an informed decision about whether they're going to use this particular treatment, which is also more expensive, I should say. And the thing is, I, I make no judgment about whether women and men choose to do this, but I want them to understand and be informed about why they're doing it and whether they need to do it so they can choose to do it with that full knowledge. Well, I think especially in the cases where it's not necessary, if you've got a couple who could produce just as many or, or could have just as many children come as a result of IVF rather than ICSI um, and just allowing nature to kind of do its thing, then, you know, I agree with you. Like, why on earth are we doing ICSI just because we can? Mm. Um, you know, does it, you know, just because, well, especially in countries where, like Australia and, and in the US, where it's a for-profit service. In, in Australia, it's government funded. Um, and so, yes, it costs a couple extra, but they get most of that back. Um, and so there's a lot of extras that are added on, a lot of unnecessary treatment that goes on here in Australia where, you know, couples aren't even properly investigated until they've had four failed cycles. That's, um, and That's so, a huge number. Oh, it's huge. It's, it's ridiculous, Nava. You'd be, you'd be disgusted <laughs> if I told you all of what's going on here in Australia. It's, um, it's ludicrous. One IVF cycle as a diagnostic procedure? Okay. I get that. You can learn an awful lot from a from an IVF cycle that doesn't go well. You can learn masses about ovarian response and egg quality and sperm quality and you know endometrial receptivity. I mean, you can learn a ton. And in fact, sometimes after someone's come to me with one IVF cycle and I've seen all that paperwork, I know exactly what to do so it doesn't happen again. It's amazing to have that. But four? Mm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, there's a whole lot of, um, you know, they have to be careful that they're not considered to be over-testing. You know, if they're screening patients, then that's a bad thing because, of course, um, you know, there's Medicare rebates on all, of the, um, on all of the blood tests. But there's an extraordinary amount of money um, government-funded that goes towards IVF cycles. Mm. Um, and there are, you know, there's plenty of patients that come to see me that have had 10 cycles. Um, you know, I had a patient who had, you know, very severe luteal phase defect. Um, she, even on, you know, even with all of the medication support, even after having a, um, a frozen transfer, she was getting her period three days after. Wow. Oh, wow. That's harsh. Poor lady. Yeah. And that was with, you know, so much, you know, she was taking so much progesterone and, 
And I said to her, like, what, what on earth are they going to do about this? And she said, well, no one's ever said anything about it. So I ended up, I wrote to her specialist um, and I just said, look, this is, this is crazy. Like she's got severe luteal phase defect. They thought she was an ovulatory, but in fact, she ovulated on day 21 of a 24 day cycle. Um, and so they thought she was an ovulatory, but she was in fact ovulating. And of course you picked that up with a temperature chart, right? Because you and I take the time to look at a chart, which tells us so much about what's going on. Correct. Um, and it turned out that her partner also had sperm issues that hadn't been picked up either. But, um, yeah, the fact that they'd done um, 10 cycles and the main reason really that they hadn't worked was because she didn't have proper luteal phase support. So after we got in touch with her specialist and they adjusted her treatment protocol, she then went on to have um, a, um, a successful pregnancy. Amazing. And that's the value of the detective work we do in our integrated understanding. Mm. And sometimes it's that clients have a progesterone allergy. It's sometimes that they don't agree or don't absorb well the standard uh, synthetic progesterone they're given, right? They need a different modality of them. There are some progesterones we know synthetically that do better for women who have had multiple miscarriage. So it's just helping the patient to be informed and understanding about all of this mm. in order to help them get where they need to go. Yes. Yeah. Um, in terms of testing and under-treatment and under-diagnosis, this is like a theme here in Australia. <laughs> um, you know, I've seen so many, so many patients that have come back, or not so many, I've seen enough um, that it's developed a pattern in my mind, at least, of men who I've seen them face-to-face -face physically in the clinic and I'm somewhat troubled by the look of their tongue or their pulse, you know, indicating that they've got significant amount of heat or damp heat or blood stasis or something that's going on. And then their sperm test comes back as totally fine. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking like 200 million per mil in terms of the count. The morphology might be at 50% normal and the progressive motility could be at 85%. You think fabulous. Except. Yes. Yes. I'm suspicious. <laughs> and this is where, you know, I would just love to be in a country where it was par for the course that men are just tested for sperm antibodies and DNA fragmentation because guess what? They're the guys that come back with absolute, you know, it's like a war zone going on in there, yeah. but it's just yeah. not demonstrated in that, um, in that basic semen analysis. And I have access to testing, so I can send them to testing for testing myself, which is a really amazing thing. But it sort of reminds me of what happens with women in thyroid, right? They're tested for TSH and free T4, and those are absolutely fine, and that's it. And I, I remember having a patient who looked absolutely fine from that point of view, but her thyroid antibodies, when I checked them through my lab, were at 8,000. Holy moly. Like an autoimmune storm was happening. And it's the same thing, right? A sperm test is not necessarily an accurate reflection of what's going on underneath. Mm. Yeah. Yes. So um, when, when a woman comes in and even, and you know, those numbers that I quoted are actually pretty good numbers. Mm. Um, by today's standards, mm -hmm. um, if we're talking about what was going on in the 90s and in the 80s, that would have best been, you know, so what? Yeah. Um, but there are so many women who come in um, and they're told that their partners are fine, you know, and that I've been told it's my old eggs that are the problem. And I mm -hmm. have a look at the semen analysis and he might have 2% normal morphology, which which means 98% of his sperm have some type of physical defect. Mm -hmm. And he's given the green light and she's told that it's her old eggs. And yes. so I invite you, dear practitioner who is listening to this, if you are treating patients, you're treating fertility patients in your clinic, I, I really invite you to ignore what your patients have been told and make sure that you cite the test results for yourself and learn how to read them if you haven't already learned because it is rife within the mainstream medical industry that women are apportioned with blame if we're using the word blame or even worse still a couple is told they have unexplained infertility despite a man having clear and obvious problems with his sperm and then of course the next step is have egg donation that'll solve your problem yes egg donation with shitty sperm i i hate when that happens <laughs> I know. Yep. And it's such a, it's so unnecessary from our point of view. I think it's unethical. 
I think it's unethical. It is unethical. And if a practitioner is able to do as we do and step in, write a letter, there's something about also sometimes putting something in writing because a doctor can't ignore something that's written. It's on the record. It's a little bit like a birth plan. It's on the record. You can't ignore it. Things might not go to plan, but you can't ignore its presence. So if you put it on the record, it's not normal to only have 2% of sperm. I would like to see DNA fragmentation to understand what's going on. It's not normal that an embryo when is arresting on day three when she has 15 eggs, if that's not down to egg quality. Can we do something about that, please? And they can't ignore it mm. because they open themselves to, to court cases, to lawsuits if they ignore that. Or that there's 10 eggs but only three of them are fertilising mm-hmm. and why are we calling this an egg issue? Yeah. 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 For those who don't know, they are very clear indications. Signs. <laughs> it is very clear indications that it is not an egg issue. As you say, dear practitioner, we invite you to read Claire's book that's coming up that will tell you all about these things that you need to know to really manage your client's health better with them. Mm. And I will I will preface that by saying that the book that I'm writing is a book for patients. So it doesn't have the level of technical information in there that a practitioner would necessarily need to be able to comprehensively and effectively treat their patients. But the, the purpose of the book is to have that preliminary discussion with your male patient about why on earth they need to be in your clinic. What, what does it mean? What is going on with sperm around the world and what can be done about it? So it's basically a game plan to get the guys headspace right and to get them on board with your treatment and to make it easier for them to come and see you weekly or however often you want to see them. And if you are a practitioner who does want to understand more about, about all aspects of ART, artificial reproductive techniques, more about the drugs that are used, more about the protocols, more about how to work in as a TCM practitioner, both male and female, I invite you to come and uh, look at my online learning platform and take the ART module where I talk to death the subject of ART, everything from how uh, how originally uh, hormones were made uh, all the way through to what happens behind the scenes in a lab. So you get a really comprehensive, integrated understanding of that whole process and all of the investigations you should be having and all of the studies you can quote and all of the downloadable practitioner clinical resources of questions that you can give to your clients to take to clinics to ask questions about what their treatment will be like to empower them to get the right treatment. And that's all on my module, the ART module. So uh, Claire will leave a resource for you and I'd invite you to take that module and learn more about what you as a practitioner can do to up your game. I think that that's um, it's a fabulous resource. You know, Nava really knows her stuff. She's uh, She's a full full herb nerd uh, when it comes to it and um, she will uh, challenge you to get um, to get really really clear and really precise with your diagnosis and your treatment Um, so yeah fabulous resource so one thing I did want to touch on Claire and I know that you've got some really clear thoughts and guidelines about this and that's how to get men on board with what we're doing right so we're not just getting them through their wives or through their partners And we're not talking to them in the same way as we talk to our female clients. Can you share some of your strategies and thoughts on how to get men in the clinic and compliant? That's a really good point. Um, And that's, it's a common um, problem that practitioners come up against is that men, if they do show up in the clinic, do so very reluctantly. And it's very, it can be very difficult to get some men on board. There are, there are some men who are fabulous as patients they they arrive in the clinic they're open-minded they enthusiastically take on board um all of your treatment recommendations and you know life is great they're not the ones that i'm talking about i'm talking about the tough nuts and there are very specific things that we can do in the way that we interact with these male patients to help to make them feel more comfortable have more confidence in you as a practitioner and also to feel more um, just in general, feel more motivated and excited about being part of a treatment program to support their fertility. And there's a few, there's a few things that we can think about. And this is, um, this is by no means a hard and fast rule for all men. 
the same that there's no hard and fast rules for all women because we're all different people. But there are some generalizations that we can make that can be useful here. And when we think about the ways in which our the ways in which we communicate with each other, there's there's some hardwired stuff that goes in. When women are talking to other women, we tend to speak with a higher pitch more quickly and a blah, 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 you know, like we can interact with each other in, um, you know, we interact with each other quite differently than we do when we're in a mixed gender group. And when men talk to other men, they do the same thing, but in reverse, they kind of, blah, 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 blah. you know, they talk lower and <laughs> more slowly and we don't even do this consciously, right? This is just something that we do without even realizing. And I was reminded of this fact just on the weekend, I was um, visiting my sister for the first time in a couple of months since um, we've just had um, some of our restrictions lifted with, um, with COVID-19. If you're listening to this in the future, then uh, we're recording this still, you know, we're doing the COVID-19 thing and we're half of the world's still in lockdown and, you know, the apocalypse is here. Um, you guys obviously in the future know how it's played out, but we're still in it right now. Anyway, so, um, uh, you know, I saw my sister and, and my dad was there and, um, you know, my dad said, oh, hi, you know, to, to me and my sister. And then my brother-in-law, he said, hello, Ben, you know, like I'm trying to do my best impression of like a deep, a deep low voice. But it was so interesting to hear this, the so distinct, the difference in the way in which he spoke to us as females and then to speak to my brother-in-law. And he did that without even realising. And we all do it without even realising and so our job as practitioners, if we're wanting to try and communicate better with a man, is we need to, be, need to become aware of some of those unconscious communication patterns and try and just tweak it as much as we can within our, within our control to be, um, so that we can be more effective and to be able to communicate our message more effectively. And so as women, um, and I'm talking primarily to female practitioners here, um, male practitioners don't tend to have the same level of uh, trouble in getting male patients on board, although there are some things, but I'm primarily talking at the moment about getting these difficult male patients on board as a female. Um, some of the things that we are often doing unconsciously as women is that the, the tone of our voice. We often talk with either a neutral tone or we're going up at the end of our sentences. And so if we're going up at the end of our sentences and we're doing all of this all of the time, it can, well, it can become a little bit annoying for a man to hear that. That tends to be not how men communicate with other people. They tend to have a neutral tone or more of a down tone. So going down at the end of their sentence rather than up at the end of a sentence. Hopefully you can hear the difference there. Um, but if, if you can practice as a woman, if you can practice having either a neutral tone or a down tone at the end of your sentences, then that in and of itself will demonstrate some um, credibility and some authority and it can help to get over that particular hurdle if that's something that's going on. Do you think that's an Aussie thing though? I'm interested to hear whether you think this is an Aussie thing because Aussies, and obviously I'm one too, um, do tend as part of the uh, part of our culture, our way of talking. We do. I hear it now. I live in the UK. We do tend to go up more, whereas I think other practitioners in other countries do go down more just as part of their way of talking. I've heard um, people in the US do it. I've heard people in the UK do it. Um, I think it's more, I think it's more situational and I don't think everyone does it. So mm -hmm. some people, some people naturally have neutral or down tone as part of their, you know, instructional, um, you know, way of relating. Um, and those people have a fabulous upper hand. They've got that gravitas built in. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. And, and we need to create that, um, that gravitas, that sense of, you know, commanding the conversation because men, you know, historically the, the role of the man was to protect, protect the tribe, to make sure that the tribe is safe. And there was an alpha who was kind of assigned as the prime person 
to be in charge of all of those things. And then the other men just kind of like played a support role. Yeah. And in the lack of a presence of an alpha, then there's all of these like primordial things that's going on within a man. It's like, oh my goodness, are we in danger? Who's in charge here? What's going on? Are we like, is everything okay? <laughs> so if, if we're not, as the clinician, our job is to step into that role of the alpha. Our job is to demonstrate leadership, to demonstrate that we are here to protect, to make sure that everything's okay. There are no threats here. Everything is fine. And, in, and as long as we can take that, take that role, then, um, then men, even the most dominant and assertive man, can have that unconscious role playing in his, you know, within him, mm-hmm. can start to switch off mm-hmm. and he can start to soften and start to relax and then begin to be open to what we have to say to him. Um, and so those are some of the things. Um, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that I go into in my um, practitioner training, but there's some of the things that I can um, that I can share with you in the limited time that we have today um, that will make a difference. If you can demonstrate with the tone of your voice and with um, being clear and efficient and concise with your explanations and with your interactions and present a man with a clear plan and do it in an authoritative way, you will be able to crack some of those tougher nuts in your, in your practice. I think that's fantastic advice. I think you're absolutely right. And as you're talking, I'm thinking about situations in which a tonal change has been useful. And I'm absolutely not meaning in any way to make a comparison between children and men, but I think about it. What I was thinking about was my six-year-old that when I get serious with him, in order to make that point, I'm not going, oh, that's a terrible thing to do, right? I'm going, all right, that's not okay. And, you know, you think about that tonal change and the difference, our little boy, but it has a difference. It has a different impact on that kid. And so if you're struggling to think about how to do it, think about that shift that you make when things get serious at home with your kids. And that's, you have hit the nail exactly on the head. That's exactly how I've had it explained to me. And that's exactly how I explain it to to other people is that for women in particular who might find it difficult to do, um, and I've just run a, a practitioner training today and there were some women who were like, wow, that's that downtone's really challenging. Um, but uh, yeah, if you are a mother, if you've got nephews or children. nieces, <laughs> you have access to children, you get your mum voice on, <laughs> get your mum voice on because it's like, right, we are getting out of the house, get your shoes on, we are out the door. That's how a mother, well, that's how I speak to my yeah. children. <laughs> you reached your point the and then there's no more missing. <laughs> Correct. I'm saying it for the 25th time. I'm like, you know what? I am done with niceness. It's like we are getting out of here. <laughs> this is not negotiable. Um, and that's the exact type of tone that um, is going to command attention and command um, you know, a certain level of respect from, uh, from your more stronger personality male patients or even how you talk to a dog right when you're doing dog training that that language where you're kind of you're being the alpha in that relationship correct and i've i don't know is anyone um anyone who's listening watched lots of caesar milan videos he's like the dog whisperer oh yeah and he always comes in and, the, you know, the people are like, oh, my dog's so naughty. And he's like, no, you are the problem. Your dog is not the problem. You are the problem. You've got to, you know. It's like assert- the super nanny of dogs, isn't he? Correct. He's like, you've got to be calm, assertive. That's, that's <laughs> kind of what he, what he teaches people and, you know, how they need to be in order for their dog to feel calm and to not freak out and chew the rug and pee inside and all of those kinds of things. So, yeah, that calm. So while certain- you and I have never had our patients do any of those things, I hope I've <laughs> <laughs> yet to have a patient come and chew a rug and pee inside. It is something about, as you say, being able to be confident in you to hold and manage them through a process. Yes. And remembering that, you know, men men have different needs. They're not hairy women. You know, we need to we need to acknowledge that they <laughs> that they Brilliant. have we need to acknowledge that they have different things that they need and things that they require in order to feel comfortable 
and to feel safe. You know, we're very well versed, generally speaking, as female practitioners in being able to develop rapport with other women. And, you know, they're coming in and if they're demonstrating upset or unhappiness with the process, they're usually going to be crying. And our strategy for that is here's, here's a tissue. You know, we all have tissues in, mm-hmm. in the clinic and that, that can be our strategy for that. But if a man is coming in and he's demonstrating his unhappiness or his upset with the fertility journey, that's often going to be demonstrated in other ways mm-hmm. and it can often be pushback against why do I have to be here? Who are you to even you know, advise me these things. I don't want to give up alcohol, you know, um, and all of the myriad excuses and reasons that we've heard um, as fertility practitioners from our, from our male patients. So if we can just remember that it's just a different manifestation of the same thing, which is an unhappiness about the fertility journey so far for them. And it's not personal, right? It's not personal. The anger that you see, it's a cry for help in exactly the same way, just with a different way of achieving it. Exactly, exactly. Um, There's lots of other nuances there, but um, I could talk all day about it and uh, (laughs) we will run out of time. We've covered a lot, though. We have covered a lot today. From, From South Korean floor temperature to epigenetics to... Uh, training dogs, children and men, a whole lot of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> a whole lot of stuff. <laughs> um, and this is really just the tip of the iceberg. You know, I think that, um, you know, we don't pay nearly enough attention to to male health and male reproductive health. There's a lot of books and a lot of seminars and a lot of people specialising in women's health and the female aspects of infertility. And I think the men go un, undernoticed and, um, and underrepresented in, in terms of, um, you know, clinical textbooks and even just, you know, in general, the, the amount of resources that's available to men who are on a fertility journey is um, severely lacking. And it's, it's something that's, um, you know, it's really important to, to talk about it because it's not just a matter of, oh, well, you know, if I don't want a baby, it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter that my DNA fragmentation is rotten or that my sperm analysis is, you know, severely lacking. Um, when we're talking about male reproductive issues, and the same with female reproductive issues, if a man has issues that have affected his fertility, he is far more likely to experience testicular cancer or other reproductive cancers. And so by by helping a man to address his fertility, we're also by default helping to optimise his health and reducing his risk of developing cancer later on. So we're actually playing an overall role in um, in supporting a man with his health. It's not just about this outcome of getting a baby, it's the outcome of him still being on the planet in 20 years' time. That circles back to what we were talking about earlier, doesn't it, about using our integrative medicine knowledge and the access we have to studies and tests as a, as a hook to engage uh, with our clients and to give them information they need about their general health, as you say, as an extension. Their fertility health is just their body body's most immediate way of screaming out there might be an underlying problem that needs to be addressed. Yes, exactly. Um, and overall, you know, we're going to have men feeling, you know, they're feeling younger they often feel have more energy they're sleeping better their virility is better their their libido is better um you know if if they lost their morning erections they're going to come back um you know men are going to feel like they felt like in their 20s if we're doing a good job of practitioners and if they're doing a good job of um holding things up at their end of the bargain so you know there's a lot of wins that are potentially on the table for our patients. And, and I think if we can, um, you know, if we can work out ways of being able to get our patients on board, we can work out really effective clinical strategies, understand the, the pathology of what's going on, be really great at our Chinese medicine diagnosis. Mm. We have so much to offer these men. Yeah, absolutely. That goes way beyond just the surface of let's try and have a baby. Let's try and help you have a baby. Yeah. 
and we're offering so much to their to their female partners as well because we're relieving them of of the burden of you know this is the reason you know you're the reason when that you're not pregnant mm-hmm. we're actually saying hey you know what there's some things here that we can do to improve his fertility which means that you know they're we're bringing couples closer together and I think that that's a fabulous thing as well that partnership that we can help them create that feel of support when the when their male when the male partner does something takes their supplements without being nagged engages with the process comes for treatment it feels completely different it changes their relationship it improves things yes and helps a woman to feel better about herself and she can you know she can repair any damage that might have been done to her connection with her own femininity Mm. and you know the questioning that's been positioned towards her fertility Mm -hmm. as being the issue you know that can start to be repaired as well I think that's exactly right it's been so fabulous speaking to you today Nava I really enjoy our chats me too always I always learn something new Fabulous. All right. Well, uh, we've got some resources to look up. There's my book, which is coming soon. We've got Nava's platform, which is well worth getting onto, um, especially if you're wanting to do a deep dive into learning all things about fertility. Um, I have some online courses about male and female fertility as well. If you're wanting, if you're wanting to look at those, and all of the other resources that we discussed will be in the show notes. Uh, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for inviting me on, Claire. It's been awesome. Great fun. Speak to you soon. Okay, bye. Bye.